Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Tier Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy at the IISS. Today, our guest speaker is the UK's ambassador to Japan, Julia Longbottom. Ambassador Julia Longbottom began her third posting to Japan in March this year, returning this time as UK ambassador to Japan. Previously, between 1990 and 1993, she was in Tokyo as the second secretary in the political section of the British Embassy, then again between 2012 and 2016 as the deputy head of mission. Her long engagement with Japan has allowed her to witness the country face a variety of changes and challenges. Last year, she was also responsible for the coronavirus task force within the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as its director and has also served as the director for consular services in the FCO. Welcome, Ambassador, and thank you for joining us on Japan Memo. Thank you very much, Yuka. It's good to be with you. So, Ambassador, your first posting to Japan was in the 1990s as the second secretary in the political section. What were your first impressions of Japan and how has Japan changed over time? I'm not sure that I knew really what to expect. I was fascinated by Japan, by the language. So I, I'd studied languages at university, but some pretty simple ones like French and German. And the idea of, of learning a difficult language like Japanese really appealed to me. I'd studied for a year in the UK before I arrived in Japan. So when you learn a language, You begin to learn something about the culture. But what was fascinating was that after a whole year of study at SOAS in London, I arrived and felt really quite a culture shock, but also that my Japanese really wasn't any good to survive with. I then had a, a sort of deep dive culture shock experience by going on a homestay for two weeks almost immediately. I'd landed in, in Nagano City, staying with.、Um, I guess a, a sort of an archetypical Japanese family, a father who was a, a car dealership salesman, a mother who worked part time, two girls who were at high school. And I just experienced normal Japanese family life for two weeks. I learned all about the etiquette around bath time and、uh, in which order of importance people got in the bath. In other words, the father first, the guest second. The daughter's third and the mother last, probably when the water had gone cold. And also, just how hard they all worked. And the mother was always up very early in the morning, you know, cleaning and cooking this incredible breakfast before everybody left the house. And then again、uh, in the evening when everybody got home. And so I think I got that sense of. Japanese dedication and culture of sort of hard work and, and striving to succeed. I began work in, in the embassy after a year of a further year of Japanese study. And as you said, Yuko was working on the political brief. There were very few women around in any positions other than O Eru. Office ladies doing the photocopying and making the tea that I came across. As a foreign woman, I was treated with respect and credibility and was given access to 
uh, a lot of aspects of um, the Japanese political world and the media as well. So I spent quite a lot of time eating and drinking in the evenings with Japanese journalists, again, pretty much all men. People were very open, gave me uh, a lot of information and insight. You know, it was just a fascinating place to work. And of course, in the 90s, uh, the early 90s, officially speaking, that's when the bubble burst. Arriving in, in 1989, you felt the sort of internationalism of the bubble era. Uh, there were a lot of foreigners working, you know, British expats working in the uh, banking and financial services world in, in Tokyo. Outside Tokyo, of course, there were very few foreigners and um, you really stood out. It was an era of great hope and enthusiasm, a lot of outward looking. Everybody wanted to learn English. Everybody wanted their children to study abroad. I think that was why I was invited for the homestay because, you know, the family wanted their daughters to be interested in learning English and, and studying in the UK. So it was a, it was a moment of cosmopolitanism and, and, and real interest. The country at the time, the economy that was growing fast and that was taking over the world. We all expected, you know, much as we think about the Chinese economy these days, Japan was, you know, trade and investment were somewhat imbalanced. Uh, we were all pushing hard to persuade Japan to sort of open up more to to foreign business, but also finding it hard to compete with this incredible industrial machine that Japan had become. As the British government and, and many other like-minded countries, we were pushing Japan hard at the time to carry some of the burden of international affairs and foreign policy and security policy areas that came with having that kind of international economic strength. That was a real theme at the time. We were very like-minded. We often voted the same way at the United Nations, but there were all these restrictions that Japan had both through its constitution, but also in terms of settings that meant for one reason or another, we always felt that Japan wasn't sharing enough of the burden of international peace and security. And that was a, a narrative and a conversation that, that lasted for quite a long time. Very interesting. And you raised some interesting points that I would like to follow up on. Firstly, you mentioned the role of women in Japanese society, and I recently saw your tweet about the meeting between the UK Minister of State for Asia, Amanda Milling, and Japanese Minister of State Suzuki Takako. I think you added to this tweet, girls power. Have you seen any changes on this front over the past decades? It's 31 years since I first arrived in Japan. And I think change has been slower than I thought it would be. My second posting was from 2012 to 16. And I was quite shocked when I arrived back in Japan to find that things hadn't changed as much as I, I thought they would have done. But it, it really does feel now that things are, are beginning to shift. What I always say is that there are really amazing women in Japan that I come across who are working in all kinds of different fields, who are extremely capable, who've probably had to work quite hard uh, and put up with quite a lot <laughs> to get to the, the senior positions that they've reached. But I think it's just important to keep shining a light on them and normalizing the idea that women can be extremely clever can study at the top universities, uh, get brilliant jobs and have amazing careers and have 
partners and children and a family life. You know, it's still probably quite hard for women in Japan to have all of those things, but it's really important that there are role models and people who can show that that is possible. The other thing that I often say is that gender is an issue for everybody, gender and, and diversity and inclusion. It's not a women's issue. That uh, mindset needs to shift in Japan, that women's empowerment and the benefit for Japan of making use of this talent, you know, 100% of the talent available to the economy and to thought leadership in Japan. You know, it's a great waste if all of that talent isn't being used. And it matters for men too, that they and their partners can, can have families and children and, you know, share careers together. It takes both sides to... Uh, to want to shift that. There are a lot more, you know, young couples these days, they both need to work often, you know, economically, it's no longer sustainable, really, for one partner, usually the man to, you know, to have the career and the, the serious job. I look around and I see more young couples who are both working, who where the father's, you know, taking the children out at the weekend to the, the park and you know, the mother's probably, I don't know what she's doing, but, you know, it's, it feels like there's been a big shift. So uh, that's very welcome. You also mentioned a changing role of Japan in the region and in the world over the past decades. But the external environment itself surrounding Japan has also significantly changed during that time. On the security front, with the rise of China, the deterioration of security environment also caused by North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile advancements. And then in terms of economy, the Indo-Pacific has become the engine of global economy, accounting for two thirds of the world's growth. So in that context, how did you see the external environment change over the past decades? And also, UK has released its integrated review in March 2021 and announced its Indo-Pacific tilt. So why is UK tilting to the Indo-Pacific? You're absolutely right that the external security environment or the environment in this region has changed significantly. It's interesting, I think the moment when China overtook Japan as the second largest economy in the world, that was a big moment. If I look back to when Hong Kong was, was handed back to China, I was actually working on the Hong Kong brief in London at the time. And in 1997, when the handover happened, the relative size and importance of Hong Kong's economy compared with China's was not insignificant. You know, and it's a tiny place at 6 million people. But we all assumed that the jewel in the crown or the benefits of that, that Hong Kong economy, including to China, were one of the reasons why you know, we trusted that China would hold its side of the, the bargain on the, the joint declaration, international treaty on one country, two systems for 50 years. But look at just how much has changed in, in that balance in the meantime. The impact of China is so much more strongly felt in the region, its political and economic weight, as well as the the impact on the, the security atmosphere, which also comes from Russia, Japan's geography. I've often heard Japanese people say, you know, there are many things we can do, but we can't change our geography. Having both China and Russia and North Korea as close neighbors in this region, it can't be ignored. The Indo-Pacific and, and the, the security backdrop, I mean, it's not just this region. 
in general, and um, we set all of this out in the UK government's integrated review this year, the threat picture has, has diversified globally. The fact that we are an interconnected world and that digital technology and travel and supply chains are all so much more interconnected means that when we can't rely on all parties supporting this open rules-based international system that uh, democracies rely on so much. Um, you know, if everybody isn't playing by by the rules of the game, then suddenly the the risks increase dramatically. And so, everything from you know hostile state um, activity to sort of indirect activity by those who have malign intentions, through to um, cybersecurity hard security issues, but also global issues that affect all of us, like climate change and pandemics. The external atmosphere is so much more unstable. But the Indo-Pacific, as you said, it has sort of the majority of the world's economic growth, a place that we're all looking at um, for our future prosperity. We want to build those connections ever stronger, both economically and from a security point of view. It's a region that um, we want to engage in more security-wise because we want to make sure that the international system can keep working so that we can collaborate and, and benefit from the prosperity opportunities. And where, you know, there are many countries that are like-minded um, and are close partners historically and more recently, we think that the UK has a, a big role to play. You know, we think we're demonstrating that commitment. And let me dive deeper into the security and defence challenges. You mentioned that the challenges have diversified in that context. How do you see the bilateral Japan-UK security relationship evolving? And what are the major achievements that you have seen so far? If I can just take a little step back, actually, uh, you know, you asked me something about what what's changed in Japan since I first came here. The biggest area of change, certainly for somebody working in the world of diplomacy, is Japan's security posture. You know, I was here in 1990 when the first Gulf War began and there were sort of accusations then that Japan was engaging in checkbook diplomacy so it was happy to spend money on on supporting allies and partners unable to get involved and then you know through things like sending minesweepers to the gulf the first peace cooperation law allowing the SDF to be deployed overseas for the first time that was in 92 through to you know the review of the US Japan defense guidelines and so on step by step Japan and and through all of those checks and balances of democratic debate and and parliamentary scrutiny has has sort of moved towards playing a more active operational role in international peace and security. But I think the biggest change was definitely under the, the second Abe administration from 2012, late 2012. And I was here through that period. So I was here for four years till summer 2016. And it was very striking to see people position Abe as right-wing and hawkish you know, what he was able to do through his his high level of ambition for Japan to be more active in international peace and security process through actually what I would describe as a an ever stronger parliamentary democracy system produced some very both groundbreaking but sort of sustainable 
outcomes in terms of Japan's security posture. And in terms of the UK, what that meant was that from 2012, we, we set up our first strategic dialogue. So that's a foreign minister to foreign minister dialogue. We agreed a memorandum on defense cooperation. We saw, incidentally, that supporting Prime Minister Abe in his declared intention for Japan to play a more active role in international peace and security was something that first was the right thing to do, but second, we thought, you know, should should build us some credit and, and credibility with the Japanese system. We saw that opportunity from the beginning to build a closer UK-Japan defence and security relationship, uh, even though at that time, you might remember, relations in the region were pretty challenged because there was the anniversary of the end of the, the war in the Pacific looming and Japan's neighbours were trying to turn Abe's ambition into something that was a, a negative and, and should, you know, shouldn't be trusted and, and should be challenged. We saw it as a real opportunity to, to do that thing we talked about from the beginning, to persuade Japan to put more, um, more resource and uh, operational assets into playing this role initially in the softer side of security and defence, but increasingly now in some really serious collaboration. We now have in place a, an acquisition and cross-servicing agreement, as you know. We have just opened formal negotiations to, um, to negotiate a reciprocal access agreement. We have two plus two talks, so they were set up in 2015 between uh, foreign and defence ministers, so all four meeting at the same time. There have been a lot of um, ships visits and exchanges and shared training and that kind of thing. This year, the uh, the arrival of the destination Japan for uh, the UK's Carrier Strike Group 21, this very large deployment led by HMS Queen Elizabeth, our, uh, one of our two new aircraft carriers with a, with a strike group alongside collaborating with Japan and many other partners in the region, a real um, symbol of, of just how far both Japan's ability to work with us has come, but also a signal of our commitment and intent to, to build even further on this defense relationship with Japan. Since you mentioned a carrier strike group's deployment in the Indo-Pacific and the port call of HMS Queen Elizabeth in Japan, may I ask your major highlights from the carrier strike group's visit to Japan? There were many, and that's against a backdrop that was very challenging. So, you know, to, to bring that kind of deployment in a backdrop of COVID, where uh, there were very severe restrictions on where the carrier strike group could go, previous port calls had been affected. So the program was changing constantly. And of course, that's that's what a deployment of this kind has to be able to deal with. But, you know, if they were in a, a war fighting situation, they'd be dealing with um, uncertainty every day. But it did make it quite a challenge to actually get the carrier in here. But once she was here, you know, and, and though we were sad that there were very few people we could actually take on board uh, because of the restrictions, um, I have to say the the tour of the ship with the um, the commander of the carrier strike group, Stephen Morehouse, Commodore Stephen Morehouse, it was so impressive to to see and hear about the way that the carrier had been designed from the beginning to be efficient, to integrate the technology, uh, particularly for the F-35Bs um, that, that are on board. So it was always built with the intention 
that F-35Bs would be the aircraft on board. So very much designed for the purpose, but also to be able to operate with sort of the minimum number of of crew members and um, the statistic I remember was that for an aircraft carrier if you compared her with um, the US aircraft carriers for to deliver 80% of the capacity they're able to operate with a third of the personnel and that's down to automation of um, the weapons store they described it as like an Amazon warehouse you know machinery computer they're able to bring the missiles up to the deck in a fully computerized manner which is safer for the crew as well whereas on the US ships it's all done by hand maybe I'm not supposed to say that but just learning about all of the the different bits of um, of technology and and what went into designing it and then how they how they run it the leadership that they have on board incredibly impressive you know sort of a whole team thing from from the chefs to the the pilots all all the way through how everybody works as a team it's very inspiring and a proud moment as well to understand how it all works it's very interesting to hear about how it actually works because not a lot of people can actually see how such a big aircraft carrier operates And I myself had the privilege to actually go on board HMS Prince of Wales last week for the Pacific Future Forum. It was massive, and I'm quite excited to see how it will go fully operational, I think in about a month. So speedy last question around security. I know that Jeremy Quinn, Minister for Defense Procurement, was also in Japan to meet his counterpart, State Minister of Defense Nakayama, to discuss further collaboration between UK and Japan and the defense industrial side. But what might be the challenges for future defense cooperation for the two countries? Yes. And, and you know, I should have mentioned defense industrial collaboration because it's another area where it was sort of unimaginable, even probably 10, 15 years ago, that we could be working together on the kinds of defense technology that we are. Yes, of course, there are some challenges, uh, not least from the fact that we're at very different stages the UK, a country that has operated in the the international defence industry space for years, and Japan at this point sort of very new as a you know a potential exporter uh, of of defence technology. So of course there are steps along the way that the the Japanese system has to take to enable the kind of um, collaboration that that actually offers a, a lot of opportunities. Uh, I was talking to a colleague earlier about taboos. In the past, uh, there were a lot of issues that were taboo that were very difficult to to discuss publicly. People, you know, sort of swept under the carpet almost. On the defence and security side, it's it's part of the equation that goes with the shifting um, external security environment where. That's so much a part of the political discourse these days that it's now um, much more acceptable for Japan to be talking about how it might collaborate with the UK on, you know, the engines or the subsystems of the um, of the future fighter. And it was very striking, actually, when Defence Procurement Minister Jeremy Quinn was here, how Defence Minister Kishi and Minister Nakayama were happy to speak in front of the media about these opportunities that we're exploring. And it felt like a, a real shift. The Japanese government, it, it was acceptable for them to, to be talking about both collaboration and, and sort of potential future uh, export opportunities. We're, we're very excited about what the, what the future might hold. 
The UK and Japan EPA also entered into force 10 months ago, and talks have started for the UK to join the CPTPP. Which sectors do you think are most excited about this bilateral economic relationship, and where are the opportunities going forward? Yeah, thank you for bringing up the trade agreements. If security, if the security relationship is、um, a relatively new part of the UK-Japan relationship, the, the economic side, the trade and investment side, has always featured very large in in our relationship with Japan since since I've been involved. And what's interesting is that,、uh, as I said, back in the early nineties, the whole debate was always about how we could persuade Japan to open up more to to foreign business and foreign products,、uh, and our trade always seemed to be an imbalance. So.、Uh, You know, Japan's exports always way exceeded British ex- exports to Japan, and just this time coming back、uh, at the start of this year, I was really pleased to find that actually our trade is pretty much in balance now. So UK and Japan exports slightly different in in goods and services, but the the totals are, are more or less in in balance, which. Either means we've,、um, you know, we've been successful in the work we've been doing, or、um, or our companies have have been working hard, or maybe that, you know, the the EU Japan trade agreement, which we were very much、um, advocates for、um, in previous years, helped to begin that shift, and and we see lots of opportunities now with the bilateral agreement to to continue that. There are many sectors of opportunity from. Agriculture, you know, which I think is a, a sort of relatively new sector for us to be to be talking about here in in Japan. Digital, digital technologies, and、um, e-government, cybersecurity are all areas where the UK has real strengths, and where sometimes Japan isn't quite as advanced as as people assume that it that it might be. The industry is connected to some of the big strategic issues of the moment. So, renewable energy. There is a, a really big trend in Japanese investment into the UK's renewable energy sector, which I am、uh, very hopeful will result in the following years in the reverse happening. So, those Japanese companies bringing that know-how that they've been able to to sort of cut their teeth on. Uh, in the UK market, which I think, in in terms of the the regulation and the frameworks the government has set to promote a green economy, is a little bit further ahead than Japan's. But where British partners that they've made in in the UK and supply chains and so on might then have an opening back in Japan, together with science and technology, life sciences.、Um, you know, there's some in- incredible collaboration going on, and in Innovation and and sort of spin out companies. There's a lot of interest from Japanese investors in UK startups and and potential unicorns. Where I think there's a lot of、uh, scope for joint success in the future as well. This is being recorded before the COP26, and for the audience, I highly recommend the ambassador's recent interview with Nikkei Asia on potential areas for cooperation on green technologies. Before I go to the Japan memo questions, I have one more question. You just arrived in Tokyo recently for your third posting. So, what do you hope to achieve during your time as ambassador? I really feel our relationship is at a a point of Enormous opportunity. We want to join the CPTPP partly for the, the economic benefits it can bring in this region, but also because it's a, a geostrategic thing, and because we share values with Japan and the other members, we think that we can、uh, help to contribute through that regional 
trade network to promoting you know prosperity with with the right values in this region there's an awful lot ahead of us both in terms of challenges and and opportunities whether that's build back better world uh, or the clean and green initiative you know how do we support developing countries in, in this region and more widely to build clean infrastructure and and to make that shift to uh, to a greener economy which is so pressing i believe that there's a lot that the uk and japan can do together on that from the days back in the the early 90s when japan felt very inaccessible to people in britain you know very few of our friends and family came to visit us in the early 90s because japan was very expensive and it was a long way away and they weren't sure that you know japan was their their sort of first choice destination now um people in britain are are fascinated with japan they they can see japan's attractions and um i think we've got a long list of people waiting to come and visit as soon as the the borders open up because they they came when we were here between 2012 and 16 and and they they loved it um and and they can't wait to come back so i think what i'd really hope to be able to do is is create more of those sort of people to people connections particularly among young people you know to to encourage young japanese people to choose the uk as the destination for their studies and likewise for more young british people to to come to japan british government's just established something called the turing scheme which is designed to replace the the erasmus scheme under the european union that clearly you know we can no longer be a part of and with a bit more freedom of our own to design that scheme we've been able to open up the choices uh, of where students from the uk might want to spend a part of their course studying and we've had over 1000 applicants wanting to come to japan which exceeded all of our um expectations sadly they can't come at the moment because they would be for quite short term uh short periods of study and exchange so um the borders are not yet open to them and i hope that because they might have to choose somewhere else to go this year we don't lose that uh, momentum of just how many people are excited to come here but uh, you know i hope in the future we can see a lot more uh, exchange between the people who are you know the leaders of the future and that that we need to sort of establish these relationships because they will matter to where uk japan relations uh, end up in the future and and where there's so much potential that we really should be closer and closer as as two countries both economically and and in security terms actually our former intern james is going to japan through the jet program later this year and of course for robert ward the double light of us japan chair one of his early encounters with japan was through the jet program so it's very exciting to hear that the program is returning after covid to cultivate uk japan relations so now the first japan memo questions Do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? Amy Stanley's uh, Stranger in the Shogun City, which is a, a fascinating story of a, a young woman and the challenges she faces both with her her family in the um the countryside of Japan and then when she um decides to to move to Edo back in in the sort of start of the Meiji era. It sort of had reminded me a bit of Emily Bronte's Jane Eyre, just how tough it was for women, particularly women who didn't conform. But a really fascinating story. 
The other one, I guess, is um, Japan's story. So this is Christopher Harding's book, In Search of a Nation, 1850 to the Present. It tells the story of that all-important moment in Japan's history of the the Meiji period through the eyes or through the characters of some historical figures that he's done some amazing research into to understand uh, what was going on and what people were thinking at the time. And some pretty weird and wonderful stuff was going on in, in the Meiji era as Japan was was opening up to the West and probably going through quite a lot of agonies about how Japanese to remain and how Western to become. Uh, and I, I think that story is probably not yet complete. Very interesting. And thank you very much for your recommendations. Our second question would be, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? One is... Because Japanese people are so polite, society is so respectful, sometimes, and particularly in the world of diplomacy or negotiations, people assume that you can't sort of speak straight or address difficult issues. It's quite clever on the part of our Japanese counterparts, actually, that they they can use this to to make it feel a bit awkward for people to sort of be tough negotiators. But actually, we see plenty of occasions when the Japanese themselves are very tough negotiators. So don't be fooled by, I mean, of course, it, it's such a part, you know, big part of Japan's attraction, the way that people are, are respectful of each other and, and the reception that you receive and how much respect you're given don't think that you can't also sometimes um, speak up when you need to and the other thing I would mention people often just assume that Japan all of Japan Japanese society is high-tech uh, digital connected through um, through technology and uh, it is in some respects but there's quite a long way to go in others and uh, you know the whole question of administrative reform and uh, banning the uh, the hanko, the, the red ink stamps that uh, have to go on every document or the, the need to sign things in hard copy or send things by fax. That's still the way to go. And, and, you know, people are usually really surprised when they find that that's the real Japan uh, and that there's still quite a lot that, that is in the process of changing. It will be very interesting to see what the role of the digital agency will be to address these challenges. Also, the Minister for Digitalization, Minister Makishima Karen, is a woman who was recently selected to join Prime Minister Kishida's cabinet. So thank you, Ambassador Longbottom, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on Episode 5 of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we suggest subscribing to Japan Memo on podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me on Twitter at, at Yuka Kushino and Ambassador Longbottom at, at Julia Longbottom. Thanks again and see you next time.